Welcome to Community Union's Education Podcast with Martin and Rob. In this episode, we look at adverse weather conditions. We look at the reason behind the strikes and the issues affecting pay for teachers and support staff. And we bust those medical dismissal myths. So hello and welcome to the first education podcast for 2023. It's January, it's cold outside, it's miserable and we're all back to work, hopefully after a lovely Christmas break. Before we get properly started, and I know I say this every month, but remember there is strength in numbers, so do pass the pod, do tell your friends, your colleagues about the podcast and encourage them to look us up and hopefully even join Community Union. So in a bit of a about turn from our normal routine on the podcast, we're going to start with your working life. And as Martin said in the introduction there, it's going to be about adverse weather conditions. So you'll notice we specifically not just said snow because there's far more to adverse weather conditions than just snow. That's right. Although it has been particularly cold over the last few weeks and some areas have seen particular issues with snow, This is coming after a year where we have had extremes of heat as well, 40 degree temperatures in parts of the UK. And so it's important to consider the impact that temperature has on the workplace, whether that's a high temperature or a low temperature. And it's important we say from the very outset here that we're not just talking about schools, we're talking about your workplace. So do you just want to give us an overview of the Health and Safety at Work Act and how that might come into this? Sure. So the Health and Safety at Work Act, which was drafted in 1974, and the Management of Health and Safety at Work, which was published in 1999, require every employer, large and small, to make a suitable and sufficient assessment of the health and safety risks that employees and people who might also come into that workplace, so visitors, uh, volunteers, in our case, children, what risks are those people exposed to? And how can those risks be minimised so that the workplace is safe? It's not just about the actual workplace, though. Your employer must consider all of the risks to you. And that could include external factors such as travel. And we've said this before, risk assessments really are king here. And new risk assessments should be carried out if anything changes or if there are any new extreme weather events that mean that the current risk assessment is no longer valid. Okay, so particularly cold adverse weather is likely to raise up a few different questions. First of all, about travel and how people can get to work from their different areas that they live in, closing the workplace, providing work or remote learning, and messaging. So getting that message out there to all employees and all children who would be attending your workplace. So Martin, first of all, what is cold adverse weather? Is there a minimum temperature? I think we've talked about this before and we've discussed that perhaps there is. But is there a minimum temperature people ought to be looking for? There is guidance that suggests a minimum temperature of 16 degrees for offices and classrooms or 13 degrees if physical work is being undertaken. So 13 degrees perhaps in a gymnasium or a sports hall or somewhere where physical activity is taking place. But it's important to point out that while these are minimum temperatures, they are not a legal requirement. 
What is legal is the employer has a duty to provide a reasonable temperature in the workplace. What that means is that, for example, people working with children who have vulnerabilities, children who might have mobility difficulties in wheelchairs, children with other special needs that struggle to regulate their body temperature, the building might need to be warmer even than 16 degrees in order to keep those children safe and healthy. So what should people do if they think their workplace is too cold? So if staff think that the temperature is a bit cold, the first thing to do is to check what the temperature actually is. If we're looking at temperatures below 13 degrees, then somebody needs to take some action because that really is too cold for uh, sitting down. It's too cold for reading. It's too cold for most desk based work. As we've said, 13 degrees might be appropriate in a gymnasium where you're running around, but actually 13 degrees is pretty cold. 16 degrees is still fairly cold for Mm. being sedentary. If you're feeling cold, the first thing to do is to adjust what you're wearing and, and, and put on some extra layers. If the temperature is too cold and Uh, a thermometer suggests that it's below those safe minimum temperatures, then you need to have a word with your manager. You need to have a word with your employer and your employer needs to ensure that you are safe. And so they could then either turn the temperature up or they could put in place other measures to allow you to feel warm. That might include wearing additional clothing, extra layers, take extra breaks to have hot drinks, or the workplace might bring in extra heating options such as portable heaters. Of course, with any of those things, there still would need to be a risk assessment done because having hot drinks, especially around small children, would increase the risk level. Having portable heaters in a setting, those heaters will need to be electrically safe, so pat tested, You might need to set up an exclusion zone around those heaters to make sure that children don't accidentally come into contact with a heater which is hot uh, and which could cause a burn. Additional risk assessments will need to be put in place. And of course, if you are a vulnerable adult, maybe you're pregnant or maybe you have a disability, then it might be that the employer has no choice but to recommend that you go home in order to protect your health. Although it's important to say that if you are available for work and your employer advises you to leave for your health, this must be on full pay. And just from my own experience, not me, but a colleague of mine once in a school did start a fire with a heater in their classroom where it was admittedly very cold, but put it on a side far too near some uh, paperwork and started a fire. Uh, no one was injured and the school was absolutely fine but uh, just be really really careful I think before we move on to other things like travel and so on it might we might as well cover um, the other end of the temperature spectrum and just and just think about hot temperatures as well because it's like it's kind of the same thing isn't it really I mean it's just the other end of the scale so I know that UK law does not specify a maximum working temperature but it just there's a requirement for it to be reasonable which is not always super helpful uh, wording but you know is it the case then that your employer should do the same sort of risk assessments and make adjustments uh, you mentioned drinks breaks you know the opposite of a heater of being a fan perhaps uh, would it basically be those sorts of things yeah exactly the same sort of thing the first thing to do is to undertake a risk assessment understand what the problems are that could involve looking at the weather forecast for example um it could involve making sure that 
site staff arrive to site early so that they can open the windows early in the morning to allow the cool air in and the hot air from inside the building out, making sure that everyone takes reasonable precautions throughout the day. So additional drinks breaks, cold water, providing cooling where appropriate, so fans, maybe adopting a more casual approach to dress so children shouldn't have to wear ties and shirts done up, they maybe could wear shorts. Um, whatever is appropriate to look after the staff should also be appropriate to look after the children as well. Now, perhaps as a reflection of the of the times we live in, and unfortunately, this is likely to become you know an increasingly important issue: uh, heat waves. There's recently been new joint union protocol, hasn't there, published by Community and some other trade unions for employers in the in the event of a heat wave? Is that right? Just a few weeks ago, uh, a, a new joint union protocol was published. Ironic that this is happening during the coldest days of the year, but it has taken a little while for all the unions to agree and for us to present this as a finished protocol. Basically, everything that we have said about schools monitoring the uh, weather forecast, schools taking reasonable actions to protect their staff and the children working in them, um, all of this is contained within this document. But as you said in the introduction to this section, Rob, this doesn't just apply to schools. It also includes universities and colleges, and it also applies to nurseries and other education settings. The whole point is to try and make sure that in the event of a heat wave, that those working in education and the children that are attending those education settings are safe. And so it includes things like making sure that there's plenty of water. It includes things like making sure that there is cooling available. It looks at things like travel and how that might be disrupted if the road surface is damaged or if buses are unable to run because of the temperature. It considers all of those things and draws those to the attention of the employer to allow them to include that in any risk assessment. Fantastic and almost like we planned it Martin, you talked about travel at the end of that so let's move on to think about travel then. So this could be as Martin just alluded to any kind of adverse weather. One of the things we are more used to is, uh, is snow, floods, um, heavy rain, you know, um, at times when storms may have brought trees down and so on. Anyway, getting to work is the problem. What's the answer, Martin? There is no simple and straightforward answer here. Employees are required to make all reasonable endeavours to get to work. If you are normally expected to be at a place of work, then you should take all reasonable endeavours to get there. The key word here, as we've mentioned before, is reasonable. If the trains and the buses are not running because there has been damage to the infrastructure, it would be unreasonable for your employer to expect you to travel to work if you could not do so safely. But if you could walk to work, you may be able to do so safely. If adverse weather has affected transport in some other way, for example, heavy snow has blocked the roads, it's going to be irresponsible for you to take your car onto those roads could possibly be dangerous and actually would put you and others at risk. Again, in those instances, attempting to journey to work could be considered uh, irresponsible and therefore your employer requiring you to do so would be unreasonable. I think it's worth remembering here 
that even people working in the same setting may live in really different places. A prime example is, you know, around where you and I live, Martin, in the Midlands, where we have urban places like Derby and Nottingham, where we've got schools in those uh, in those cities. But people live out in the Peak District, for example, where there may be much heavier snowfall. So senior leaders need to remember that it's not just about what is on the ground at the setting. It's about what it's like where people live and the roads between where they live and getting to work. And also, as you mentioned, how it affects public transport as well. Coming back then to the risk assessment aspect of things and school leaders, nursery managers, those who lead universities and colleges, it's important for them to look ahead, to look at the weather forecast and to judge those things that as far as possible are foreseeable and then to make a decision based on that intelligence. And that could involve uh, deciding to close or reduce access in order to make sure that the, the school or the nursery or the college is a safe place, but also to ensure that the children are safe, to allow parents to prepare if the setting is closed and to allow staff to engage in providing work or remote learning should those things become appropriate. Okay, so let's move on to one of those things now and we'll come back to the other, closing the school. Let's assume that the weather is so bad uh, that the schools had to close. We we may also add in here potentially, because it's the same thing, the school's closed for some other reason, uh, like it's got no heating, uh, so it's going to be far too cold or there's no running water, uh, which applies to all businesses. There needs to be running water in your place of work. Um, So let's imagine the school's closed anyway. Who makes that decision, first of all? Ultimately, the decision over whether to close a school rests with the head teacher. Health and safety wise, often the caretaker will or the site manager will be in charge of making a decision about whether the site, whether the building is safe. And that would apply to all sorts of settings. But ultimately, the head teacher or the manager is the only one who can actually make the decision. Once that decision has been made, of course, they need to make sure that that information is shared amongst all the staff as quickly as possible and to the parents and the children who would normally attend that setting so that nobody is disrupted more than is absolutely necessary. Yeah, and I guess a little example being um, my mum used to work in a school in the Peak District but didn't live there. And so she would have someone who lived locally you know, be on the phone to them really early in the morning, find out what it's like around the school, talk to the site manager and so on, because it may actually have been inappropriate and irresponsible for her to drive uh, to the place of work. So decisions can be, you know, sort of made as a group. You can get information from other people, but ultimately it's the head teacher or the manager, if it's a nursery, who's making that decision. If, if you are the manager of a nursery, uh, you may have other protocols in place. You know, there may be uh, regional managers who cover a, a set of nurseries in your area uh, who may need to be involved in the decision making. But if you're concerned, you must speak to somebody who can make that decision. So that messaging, Martin, how are we getting that messaging out to people? You mentioned it there. Uh, I remember when I was a kid, the radio would be the one to tell us if the school was closed and a cheer would go up if my school was mentioned. The radio is still a very important messaging service, but it's not the only one that we use anymore. And of course, uh, lots of schools have their own Facebook pages, Twitter pages. They also have staff WhatsApp groups. Like I said, it's important that you engage with the staff just as much as it's important that you engage with the parents and the children. 
often there will be a, a, a ring tree, a contact tree where one person rings a couple of people and then those people ring others. But often the most effective way of contacting parents is to put a message out on email, to put a message out on the Facebook page, maybe something on the school website, and then uh, to use those social media methods because they are by far the most effective way of getting the message out there. What I would say is to make sure that if you are receiving messages, um, you, that you are 100% certain of who those messages have come from in order to ensure that the information that you're receiving and the information that you might then go on to share is 100% correct. Because what you don't want to find yourself in the position of as a staff member is forwarding a message that is later found out to be inaccurate. Okay, now here's a question I think is likely to come up more in the future. Once upon a time, a good old snow day was a good old day off. Uh, but thanks to the pandemic and how remote learning worked during that time, in the future, it's possible the question of does work need to be provided and should remote learning take place on a snow day? That question might come up. So, so what do you think the answer is to that? There is no hard and fast answer here. But for me, I think one of the things that is important to look at is the word foreseeable. The pandemic was a situation which was foreseeable in the long term. Nobody was expected to provide remote learning and online lessons from nine o'clock the morning of the first day that schools were closed. It took time for schools to get systems together in order to allow them to provide work for children and to improve the way that they did that and shared information. And I think snow days and other disruptions might be similarly approached in that where they can be foreseen, it might be appropriate to provide additional work. But where those circumstances can't reasonably be foreseen, it would be unreasonable to ask teachers to suddenly uh, get a load of work together or to suddenly have an appropriate space at home to work from, especially when you consider that if workplaces are closed um, because of snowfall in an area, it's likely to affect any children that those employees might also have, which might mean that the disruption is not just to your workplace, but also to the schools and nurseries that your children might go to, in which case you're not able to work from home because you've got children and they need your time and care. Fantastic. And so from one type of school closure to the possibility of another and time for our here and now section, which Martin referred to in the introduction, this month is relating to strikes and the reason for them. So we know that a number of teaching unions balloted staff on the possibility of strike action. And we know that at least one of those education unions uh, were successful in securing the required number of votes and that that strike action is going to start on the 1st of February. So Martin, first of all, what's the reason behind all these strikes or indeed the wider ballots and the wider issues in education at the moment? There are a, a large number of issues uh, that are affecting particularly teachers because the education union that is going on strike is only going on strike with its teacher members and the biggest issues that we're aware of because they're affecting our teacher members too are workload that affects well-being and rapidly rising up the league table of importance is the issue of pay 
largely due to the energy crisis and the cost of living. And we've spoken about this before, I know we have, but let's just think about just for a second that pay. Some time ago, we did a podcast where we included some um, figures on the uh, increase in prices from 2001 to sort of 2021. Perhaps not so much over the last uh, 20 years, but certainly over the last 10 years, we have seen significant increases because of the impact of austerity. So in 2010, the banks struggled and the government responded and implemented an awful lot of pay freezes or uh, pay restrictions that saw interest rates plummet to some of the lowest levels we've ever seen in this country. And whilst that was great for people with mortgages, it did have a negative impact on investments and savings and pensions. It didn't, though, seem to keep a lid on prices. For example, in the last 20 years, house prices have increased on average by 200%. To explain that just a little bit, if something cost £100 a year ago, a 100% increase would mean that it was now worth £200. So a 200% increase has doubled that price again to £400. So we have seen a 200% increase in the cost of housing. And there's been a 61% increase just in the last 10 years. The price of a pint of bitter or a pint of lager has increased by 50%. Fuel, petrol has increased massively. In the last 20 years, petrol has increased by 115%. In 2001, Fredo bars cost 10 pence. In 2021, Fredo bars cost 30 pence. Again, a 200% increase in cost. Yeah, and and during that time, there's been, uh, sorry, in the last 10 years at least, there's been three pay freezes and five below inflation rises. So essentially what we're saying here is pay for teachers has dropped and dropped and continued to drop. And the value of sort of being a teacher, the value of your work as a teacher, therefore, is now worth less, so to speak, than it was 10 years ago and 20 years ago, it's not gone up. You know, this has been a problem for many, many years. There is a level of confusion because, of course, those people who've been a teacher for 10 or 20 years, they will have seen their pay go up. The numbers will have increased. The value of their pay relative to the cost of living is where the increase has not happened. And so the value of that pay, what that pay can purchase is not as good as it was 20 years ago. In fact, over the last 10 years, the value of teacher pay has fallen by almost 25% against inflation. And this ties in with quite quite a lot, recruitment and retention, doesn't it, of teachers into the profession. So I think we mentioned before when the government announced a 5% last year that we felt that this wasn't going to solve recruitment into the profession. That was about an 8% increase, I think, on the lowest uh, lowest bands, which wasn't going to be enough to change recruitment. And that 5% for some other people wasn't going to be enough to help retention. Pay is, is, a, is a big problem in this arena. Yeah, the government accepted the recommendations of the pay review body, which recommended that M1 would get an 8.9% pay increase and that the vast majority of experienced teachers would receive a 5% pay increase. 5% pay increase, the 8.9% pay increase, these were monumental in comparison to the pay increases that the sector had seen over the last 10 years. But if inflation is running at 10, 12 
or even 14% like it was last November. Any pay increase that is less than inflation means that your pay is less valuable than it was before. It means that you are less able to buy the same things because the value of your money just doesn't stretch that far anymore. Let's have a look at some of those recruitment and retention figures then. I mean, it's down the drain, isn't it, uh, ultimately at the moment? Absolutely. So recruitment to uh, ITT, initial teacher training, is 41% below where it needs to be. And that's even worse than last year, uh, where recruitment levels were already dropping after a bit of a boost during the pandemic. In, uh, in, in 21-22, the government recruited 79% of the teachers that it said it needed to. And this year, only 59% have been recruited into initial teacher training. Not only that, but the number of primary trainees is 7% below target, which is the first time in nearly five years that recruitment onto primary initial teacher training has not been achieved. A part of this problem is, is ITT access, isn't it? So ITT, initial teacher training, is part of the problem here. So that's been restricted. And again, we've spoken before about the government's misguided reformation of the ITT market, which caused some long-standing universities and colleges, Cambridge being one, to pull out of the market completely, right? There's a whole host of reasons for this. The ITT market is notoriously complicated. And so the time was probably right for an investigation, a review of the ITT market, maybe to simplify it a little bit. But due to the government's insistence that everybody follow a rigid and fixed training programme, one which might not meet the needs of all trainees, some existing and well-respected providers decided to withdraw from the market completely. And this has meant that there are now gaps in provision. There are cold spots, if you like, around the country, meaning that if you wanted to train to be a teacher in a certain subject or maybe a certain phase, then you would have to travel, which, of course, increases the cost implications for those who do want to train to be teachers. And if the pay for those teachers when they qualify is not uh, able to allow those people to achieve a certain standard of living, then they're going to struggle to pay for um, mortgages and, and food, travel expenses, and they're going to struggle to be able to afford to pay back any student loans that they might have had to take out in order to fund their training. So all of these things play together. Not only that, they play together in the, the wider sort of graduate employment market, which has found that um, people who might otherwise have uh, been able to train as computer science teachers or IT teachers or physics teachers, they can find better employment, better paid employment elsewhere by going and working in the industry. So that's pay, recruitment and retention, initial teacher training access. And as you kind of have alluded to then, the wider state of education infrastructure, the reasons why people may not even want to come into education, even if all those things were good, even if there was good ITT access, good recruitment and retention, good pay. There's reasons why people may not want to enter education anyway. Uh, teachers and support staff are doing more and more, aren't they, with much fewer resources? And there's so many reasons for that. Yeah, we mentioned workload being a key issue. In surveys of our members, both teaching and non-teaching, we have found that workload and the increase of workload is a particular issue. This is because the support services that exist around education, things like CAMS, speech and language therapy, uh, extra SEND support or special school provision, alternative provision, the funding for those services has been cut 
and cut and reduced and reduced, so much so that settings are having to divert some of their own funding in order to provide the services that the children desperately, desperately need. Not only that, the rising cost of energy has affected schools and colleges and nurseries and universities as well, and their bills are not protected like residential bills. Some private firms, this doesn't apply necessarily to schools, colleges and nurseries, but we're aware that some private firms have experienced a 400% rise in gas costs and a 350% increase in electricity. And this is just a massive cost on top of uh, a, a reduction in the funding. And then, of course, there's the question of pay rises for staff. We know that teachers were awarded a 5% pay rise, but only 3% of that was funded by the government. We know that support staff were afforded a much needed £1,925 pay rise to each pay point. But we know that none of that was funded by government and that schools and other education settings had to find that funding out of their own reserves. And then finally, it's if the picture wasn't bleak enough, we had a report recently, um, I read it in The Guardian, but I know it's just a DFE report, that the risk of some schools collapsing, essentially, has risen from likely to very likely. And this is because of the number of schools, particularly that were built in the uh, 60s and 70s, built with an expected lifespan of around about 50 years. These schools are now at or past their expected lifespan. The buildings were not designed to last any longer. Maintenance has not kept up. And so these buildings are literally ready to fall down. On top of that, many of them will be containing asbestos, which increases the risk to members and to the children who are attending these settings. So if you do see problems with your buildings, please, please, please let your site staff know straight away so that uh, they can make sure that those buildings remain safe or at least as safe as they can be until you are lucky enough to get new buildings. So let's be honest, this is a bleak outlook right now for education. It's, it's, it's pretty bleak and there's a really great number of reasons for us all to be very concerned and to shout loudly to ensure that our voices are heard. Community members, our members indicated that they wanted to take action too, but by doing other things, political responses like writing to MPs, the local press, getting councillors to get the message out there. Yeah, it's really important that we do respond to the situation as it is around us. So we encourage all members to log on to the community website and go to the sector campaign section where they can find resources to take action on school pay. It's not just about school pay, though. This is about education pay. We've got a whole host of template letters that you can use to write to your MP, your member of Scottish Parliament, your member of the Senate if you're working in Wales, to your local councillors, to your local newspaper. Let's get the message out there that things are not right, that the levels of pay are not good enough, they do not support recruitment and retention, and that we are on the verge of a real, real crisis. So whilst the strikes are ongoing, there are a number of things that are really important for staff who are in schools and not on strike to remember and to understand. We've sent out a number of emails over the last couple of weeks directly to members. And we have loads of information on this on our website, don't we, Martin? Where can people find it? People can find this information by going to wwwcommunity to you advice pages. But if you have any questions that haven't been answered in those emails, or you can't find the information out, 
on those advice pages, then please don't hesitate to contact your regional officers, your regional teams, who will be able to give you further bespoke advice. And so on to our final section of the podcast, our Mythbusters. Boom! Martin, I'm going to go straight into it today. If you can't do your job for medical reasons, your employer can dismiss you. Wow. This is potentially something which will affect a large number of our members, particularly those who are on long term sick. It doesn't even have to be a particular serious illness that uh, gives your employer reason to feel like you are incapable of your job. It just could be relating to the length of the absence. So the first thing that we would want to see as your union reps is we would want to see that there is a process. And that process has to be fair. It has to examine all of the evidence. You have to be given an opportunity to present evidence and we have to be given the opportunity to support you and represent you in those fact-finding and decision-making meetings. Throughout that process, everything needs to rely on evidence, the latest and most up-to-date evidence. Just because you had an occupational health report six weeks ago doesn't mean that you shouldn't have a new occupational health report now. An awful lot of things can change in six weeks. You could improve significantly over that time, and that could mean that the outcome from the meeting could be different. It's also important that your employer looks at all sources of additional help to help you, but also to help them. For example, there could be reasonable adjustments that can be made to help you. This could involve making sure that all of your work is on the ground floor because you're struggling with stairs, making sure that you have a chair which is appropriate for you to sit on, maybe one that has wheels so that you don't have to keep getting up and getting down if you've got a bad back. Whatever the need is, your employer has a duty to consider reasonable adjustments. There are organisations out there that will advise your employer and even some such as access to work that can help to provide additional funding. Admittedly, it's funding that your employer then has to sort of map or top up. But there are systems, there are programmes out there that can help your employer to help you. There are considerations about how much time you might work. For example, if you know that you get too tired in an afternoon, maybe it would be appropriate as a reasonable adjustment to only work in the mornings, maybe increasing your time over a period of weeks or maybe even months. And of course, your employer can also consider alternative roles, not just in your current workplace. Maybe there's the opportunity for you to work from a different workplace or maybe even work from home, depending on the nature of your work and the nature of your workplace. So there are lots of options out there as part of a fair and reasonable process that we would expect your employer to consider before they even got to the point where they might be thinking, actually, this person is not able to do their job is not able to come back to work and therefore the only option to the employer is to dismiss. And I think one of the most important things about everything you've just said is that, and this is particularly important if you have a disability, uh, is that your your employer pretty much has to do those things before they can get rid of you. Definitely the case if you have a disability, uh, which we would define as something that is um, long lasting and has a significant impact on your life, normally long lasting over a year. It's also worth looking at other different types of discrimination as well. We know, for example, in the news just recently that the government have decided not to pursue additional support for ladies who are suffering during the menopause. But 
you could still argue that there is an equalities impact there because the menopause affects women of a certain age, in which case it could be both gender and age discrimination if your employer doesn't look at ways to support you if you are really struggling. So if you've gone through occupational health reports, medical reports, access to work referrals, reasonable adjustments, you've tried doing phased returns, part-time options, working from home, but ultimately you're just not able to spend enough time in work that your employer feels able to continue employing you. Where does that come down to in terms of what your options are left? Can you, for example, request a sabbatical? Yes, absolutely. A lot of workplaces now have sabbatical options as part of their additional leave options. You could also consider whether or not you might want to take some uh, unpaid leave and a conversation with your manager or with HR would advise you whether or not that was possible conversation with payroll would advise you about what that might look like from a financial perspective. It's worth pointing out that if you are on sabbatical or if you take unpaid leave, your pay will stop. If your pay stops, then you also stop contributing to your pension. You also stop making national insurance contributions. Both of those things can affect your pension in the long term. So this shouldn't be Uh, an an off-the-cuff decision, but should be a decision that is made with serious consideration. We know that a number of members that are on serious long-term sickness, for example, those that might be suffering with uh, a degenerative condition or with something like cancer, where their condition is not likely to improve, can also be supported through uh, the dying-to-work policy. So it's worth checking whether or not your employer has adopted dying to work uh, within their absence management policy. Dying to work is a programme which allows those people who are unfortunately unlikely to ever recover from their condition to remain in work for as long as possible and to be supported to continue to work whilst also attending medical appointments and taking additional time off where they are too ill to come into work. So after all that, all of those things we've just covered, the answer ultimately is yes. If you are too ill to attend work, your employer could dismiss you for medical reasons. They could also consider dismissing you on attendance grounds, because if you are not in work, you are clearly not able to carry out your duties as per your contract. So on both of those grounds, the employer could consider dismissing you. However, we would hope that by the time the employer gets to this particular point in the process, they have exhausted every other avenue to ensure that there is nothing else that could have been done. And remember, that does include compassion. You know, we, we really hope that by that point, your employer has shown some compassion towards you. So that is another myth busted. Boom. Mm. Because unfortunately, this is one of those myths that doesn't really have a happy ending. We seem to have spent quite a lot of time today, Rob, talking about things that are happening in education that are not very happy. Mm-hmm. It's important that listeners do note that we are here for you in the sad and the hard times, just as much as we are here to share with you some fun and joyous things. So do get in touch with us to share some fun and joyous things that maybe we can report on in future podcasts. And if you do want to get in touch with us, they can email us on policy at community-tu.org. They can follow us on social media for news, uh, shared content, resources. For help and advice, we recommend that members visit our website, 
to check out the FAQs, the Advice Centre and the information sheets. And if you can't find the information that you are looking for there, please do give us a ring or drop our regional teams an email. Remember that the reason unions exist is because we are better if we stand together and if we come together and stand up for one another. So please do continue to pass the pod, encourage your friends and family to listen, encourage your friends and family who aren't already in a trade union to join us. And we'll see you again for another episode of the Education Podcast. Thank you.